Atmosphere Church podcast. On behalf of all of us here at Atmosphere, thank you for downloading or streaming this service. We pray that it will touch your heart and change your life. In addition to bringing you today's service, we want to make ourselves available to you in any way we can. If you need prayer or just someone to talk with, please send us an email to info at atmosphere.church. Someone from our team will be sure to connect with you. We have already prayed for you that today's message would speak directly to your heart and empower you to live the life God has called you to live. Enjoy the message. Uh, My name is Pastor Jim. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are so excited that you showed up. And you've heard me say this before, but showing up is half the battle. So because you showed up, you're already halfway to your victory, all right? And I hope I'm halfway to my victory as, I, as I'm feeling like a little bit like Edward Scissorhands today, and I'll, get, I'll unpack a little bit more about what happened to me, and, and uh, you should see the other guy. No, just, um, but we are starting a new series today called Anxious for Nothing, and I, I believe the rollout of this new series is perfect for this Sunday. Um, our community has been through a lot of emotions this past week as we crossed over the one-year anniversary of the tragedy at Borderline and also the tragedy of the Woolsey Fire and all the devastation that both of those events had on our community. And for me, being a a, a new guy here uh, and and being told, like, you know, this is the safest place in America and all of this, like, you know, it's sleepy town, and coming from Vegas, which everyone brands as crazy town, and there's a reason it's called that, but I came here, and it's just, it was crazy here. And so I know that anxiety is an issue that we're facing as a nation, not, not just because of all of these events that are taking place on, on a regular basis. I, I think there's a lot of reasons why we are facing so much anxiety. Matter of fact, sociologists say that we're living in the age of anxiety. And I found this very interesting that uh, the Bible app, version, a lot of you guys have downloaded. It's the most downloaded Bible app uh, on, I think, uh, like Apple and, and all the other platforms uh, of smartphones. But they did uh, a little investigating last year. In 2018, the most downloaded, highlighted, and shared verse of the Bible was actually found in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. I'm going to put it up on the screen because it's such a good verse. Matter of fact, I have these little uh, scripture cards uh, that if, you, if this verse is like, you're like, yes, I needed that verse. Some of you came to church just for this verse this morning, but we have these cards in the lobby. It says, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I love that. And this is written, obviously, by the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel. But isn't it crazy that thousands of years have passed, and we as a modern-day culture said, that's, that's our life verse. That, that is the verse that speaks to me. That is the verse that encourages me. And on that, there's two other scriptures that are just as popular and here they are, if you want to write these down, I'll put them on the screen as well. First Peter chapter five, verse seven. Turn all your anxiety over to God because he cares for you. 
Turn all your anxiety over to God because he cares for you. This is one of the most downloaded, highlighted, shared verses in our Bibles. Here's one more. And this is kind of where the series title comes from, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What makes these verses so popular? I will tell you because people are feeling the anxiety. And verses like this really bring comfort to us. They, they really help us deal with some of the, this angst that we're feeling deep in our souls. And, and th that's one thing it tells me. But the second thing it really tells me is that this is all scripture. So this is written a long, long time ago. So our struggle with anxiety is not a new struggle. People have been dealing with fear and worry and stress for a long, long time. Matter of fact, the most repeated commandment in our Bibles is do not fear. Why? Because we have a fear issue going on inside of us. It's, it's part of that struggle that all of us feel, but some of us kind of feel it more than others. And I was reading some statistics just about how big of an issue this is, nationally speaking. It says, anxiety disorders, according to this one survey, are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting 40 million adults every year. Nearly one half of those diagnosed are not just with anxiety, but also depression. And the National Survey on Drug Use and Health just released new data about depression among young people specifically. From 2009 to 2017, major depression among 20 to 21-year-olds more than doubled, rising from 7% to 15%. Depression surged 69% among 16 to 17-year-olds. Serious psychological distress which includes feelings of anxiety and hopelessness, jumped 71% among 18 to 25-year-olds 20, from 2008 to 2017. Twice as many 22 to 23-year-olds attempted suicide in 2017 compared with 2008. And 55% more had suicidal thoughts. The increases were more pronounced among girls and young women. And by 2017, one out of five 12 to 17-year-old girls had experienced major depression in the previous year. Now, this is a statistic that really blew my mind. One in eight Americans over 12 years old take antidepressant medication every day. Now, I'm not here to bash on people that take medication. I am one that believes that God gives us medication to help us. So, so just know, if, if you don't know who I am or you don't know our church, I, I'm not one of these that go home and throw the medications away. I do believe that God uses that very often. But what I see here is, is more than just a medication issue. That there's, there's a lot going on with our culture, and, and I believe we need to address this because this isn't just stuff happening to people that don't follow Jesus. This stuff is happening to people that follow Jesus. Probably I would say the number one prayer request that I, I pray for people about are people that are struggling with anxiety. 
So even godly people can get hit with this in a way that they just feel it's paralyzing and taking over their life. My first encounter, ironically, with this up front and center was my own wife. And I know a lot of you, because she's busy over there with the kids, you haven't met her, but uh, you know we've been married now, we're coming on 27 years, and one of the things that happened about eight years ago was that she took a trip back east with the, with the school to visit Washington, D.C. And, and New York, and she called me, and she couldn't breathe, and I didn't, I didn't know what she was experiencing. Now I do. It was a panic attack, and she had never really had one of those before, but she was back there by herself in, in a very helpless, hopeless situation, and it just overwhelmed her, and I really didn't understand it, and, and so it really impacted our marriage because she was like, well, I just didn't feel like you were there for me. And I said, "Hunt, I just don't understand what it is that you're going through because I really am not an anxious person. I'm a really just easygoing guy. It's like, hey, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. You know, I, that's kind of the, the way I roll. <laughs> so I, I just put a Doris Day song in your heads. <laughs> hey, Sarah, Sarah. All right. But... I was really not very uh, empathetic or even sympathetic to my wife until I read a book. And we were coming home from one of our Africa mission trips, and I read this book that a counselor friend of mine recommended called The Anxiety Cure. And it's written by a psychiatrist that also happens to be a follower of Jesus. And so he came at it on a scientific front, but also on a spiritual front. It's called The Anxiety Cure. In, I had 10 books, uh, first service, and they're all gone, uh, so it pays to wake up early, I guess, I don't know. I, I, w- I, will, I will post the name of the book later, uh, but I read it on the airplane trip coming home, and the first thing I did when I came home and I saw my wife, obviously I missed her, but I apologized because I said, babe, I didn't understand your headspace. And now that this guy really explained it, I just, I really feel like I want to be, I want to be your safe person. I want you to feel like you can tell me everything that's going on so I can pray for you and hold you up because as much as this is a natural battle, I also believe it is a spiritual battle. And, And a lot of people that are gripped with this get paralyzed in it and just, they feel it taking over their life. And just me telling her that gave her that much more peace. Like, I have somebody that I can talk about this with. Well, let me fast forward to October 2nd, 2017, because the easygoing Kesara guy was faced with an issue in the church that I was leading that I've never faced before as a community leader. I was leading our Las Vegas church. The shooting had just happened on October 1st, and we would frequent concerts in Vegas all the time. You have to understand, when you live in Vegas because there's so many shows, you always know somebody that has extra tickets and they're looking to fill the audience. And so we have been invited to all kinds of shows. I think I've been to every show on the Strip. Well, let me just say, most shows that a pastor can attend, all right? There's, there's some other shows you're like, really, you went to that one? No, I didn't go to that one. But for all intents and purposes, I, I probably would have been at that concert, or my daughters would have. They've been to a lot of shows there. And, and so when the news came on that night 
I was actually speaking in Bakersfield that Sunday, and, and so when the news came on, we were in Bakersfield, and, and I, I didn't know how severe the, the, the shooting was, and when I went to bed finally about two o'clock, they, they said there were some victims, but n- no real news was being released, and, and I knocked out, and I woke up about seven with my wife waking me up, and, and she's crying, and she says, Jim, 58 people lost their lives. And over 500 people are injured and they're scattered throughout all the hospitals in Las Vegas. So I immediately just jumped up and kicked on, you know, this mode of like, well, we got to help. We got to turn our church into a refuge center. We found out Mandalay Bay had kind of become a crime scene. And so nobody was being, you know, released back into their hotel. So our church, which is not far off the strip, became like a place where everyone can kind of go to and just kind of hang out and wait for uh, family and friends to kind of gather, figure out what's happening. Um, it, it, it was just pure chaos. And Vegas is crazy enough as it is, but that was a, a day I will never forget. It was just pure chaos. And as the hours are going by in the morning, we're finding out more and more people in our church that were impacted from people that worked at Mandalay Bay that were on shift to people that, are in, that were a part of our church that were at the concert. And then I got the horrible news that one of our families actually lost their 20-year-old daughter in the, in the shooting. And they told me that they were stationed at a hotel uh, right down from Mandalay Bay. And so I, I went there after uh, I got that news, and I got there 20 minutes after they had confirmation that Bailey, their daughter, had died. And so here the family was grieving, and I didn't know at this time, but the mom was actually standing literally next to her shoulder to shoulder at the concert, and she watched her daughter get shot four times. And then she got dragged away in the chaos and, and was left to not know exactly how her daughter was going to get out or if she was going to get out. So I'm dealing with that family, and then that night we had a prayer vigil, and we were like, let's come together, let's, let's, let's worship, because that's, that's what we know what to do, and then we, we're going to find healing in this tragedy, and so we came together. I invited the Schweitzer family. I didn't think they would come, but as we're getting ready to start, the whole family and all of their friends that drove in from out of town, they were all there, and they came, and they were sitting in the front row, and I had to stand up on that stage, and I had to comfort loss and evil like I, I've never had to do as a pastor. And, and we did it. We prayed together. It was, it was a beautiful night. And then I went home. And, and then days after that, just visiting people in the hospital rooms. Uh, you would go to the hospital room to visit one person, but you would end up visiting 10 different people, uh, strangers that were just there that didn't live in Vegas, didn't have family there, um, but you know were riddled with bullet holes. And it just wrecked me. To be honest with you, it just, I wasn't there at the concert, but something inside me broke. And I wasn't sleeping at night. And I told my wife, I said, man, I'm not sleeping. Uh, I just, I, I, I don't know what's going on. And she looked at me and she said, you have anxiety. I go, but I wasn't there. I mean, like, uh, this, I, I'm not anxious. She goes, I'm telling you, that's why you're not sleeping. And as I reread that book, I had all the classic symptoms. So even godly people can get hit with this so hard that you feel as if it's taken over your life. It was taken over my life. 
I got a medication. I got a prescription for Xanax so I could go to sleep because I wasn't sleeping at night. And, and I hope you're gracious enough not to judge me because I do believe in medications and I needed it. And uh, it, was, it allowed me to reset and recalibrate until God could really dig deep inside it and heal me of some of these wounds. But I'm not alone in my struggle because there's a man named Elijah in the Bible. And Elijah was probably, in the Old Testament, he was like one of the most powerful dudes that we read about. I mean, Moses was a pretty powerful guy, and Moses was very connected with God. But I would say right next to Moses was Elijah. He was a prophet of God. He had a connection with God that was so tight, like God would just whisper secrets of kings to him. And like he, he had this direct pipeline to God. And, and even though he was this man of God, he got hit with anxiety. And it came right after he had this amazing, miraculous, successful ministry experience. And we read about this in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can get it out and, and turn open or click on 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. And let me give you the backstory. There was a, a lot of sin going on in Israel. They were moving away from the God of Israel to the, the gods of the Canaanites. And one of the gods of the Canaanites was Baal. And, and Ahab and Jezebel were the, the, the king and queen of Israel. And, and they were really off course and they were moving far from God. And they were bringing all of these evil practices into Israel. And Elijah was being charged by God to correct them before they went too far off path. And Jezebel in the Bible goes down as the most evil queen that ever was a part of the nation. She was a wicked, wicked lady. She was so wicked, her name is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Saying there's a spirit of Jezebel that is real and is wicked and you don't want any part of this thing. And so Jezebel is bringing up these prophets and they're taking over the land, and Elijah's like, this is so dumb. You guys are missing God. And so he called for a God showdown on the mountain. And so they were going to try to worship Baal, and, and Elijah was going to worship God, the God of Israel. And, and so they had this like holy showdown uh, of whose God was going to show up. And of course, in chapter 18, we read that God came on scene and brought fire from heaven and consumed the altar. I mean, it was like revival. And it hadn't rained on the land because Elijah said, until you guys repent, there's going to be no rain in this whole land. And so when this revival started happening and when these prophets were killed and, and the nation was kind of purging themselves of this worship of Baal, there, there was this, this awakening that Elijah was experiencing. He's like, wow, man, we're returning back to God. He's excited. He's overwhelmed. He goes and prays and says, God, bring the rain. And then on top of the miracle of the fire coming from heaven, he prays and God brings the rainstorm. And so the first time in a long, long time, it's raining. Can you imagine this moment? Elijah is just, just glowing with how God is so powerful and how God is moving in the miraculous. And then we read in chapter 19 where everything kind of comes undone. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, 
So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left a servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Classic case of anxiety that turns into depression. And so here he went from this high point to this low point. And what I've discovered in ministry is very often after a successful movement of God comes a horrendous attack of the devil. I've seen this so many times in the history of my ministry. That a God, this huge movement happens and then there's attack. Almost trying to get us out of the momentum that, that God has in our lives. But Elijah was in a very, very bad place, which tells me something else. The best of men are men at best. So you may be a super saint in here this morning, but I'm telling you right now that there are things in you that are vulnerable to anxiety, fear, and depression. Don't ever trick yourself to think that you're above that. I did. I thought I was above that. I thought, you know, I'll pray for my wife, but I'm good. No. Elijah had these amazing movements of God. Matter of fact, let, let me just highlight one of the last verses of chapter 18. It says, Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He had these miracles happen, and he girded up his loins, and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. So they were on this mountaintop, and Ahab had his chariot, all right? And then he goes down to Jezreel, and as he's leaving in this utter defeat, a, uh, uh, Elijah is so pumped, he's like running, he's like, man, I... I've, I don't know if you've ever had this victory where you're just get, you have all the endorphins like, man, I could feel like I could lift a truck right now. So Ahab gets in his car and he's driving, I don't know, from Mount Carmel to Jezreel's, what, maybe 20 miles. So let's say it's like driving from here to Camarillo. So Ahab gets in his car and he's driving to Camarillo and he looks out his window, and, and Elijah's passing him, going, hey, bro. And he outruns Ahab to Jezreel. So he gets to Jezreel, and here's this news. Now, 20 miles, that's almost a marathon in itself. Major endorphins were at work in the miracles. He just outran the chariot. He's in Jezreel. He's probably exhausted. He's depleted. And then he gets this news, and then it says he runs to Beersheba. Beersheba is like a hundred miles. So, I mean, just thinking about him outrunning the chariot to Jezreel makes me tired. But then he ran another hundred miles. That's, now that's like running from here to Bakersfield almost. It's about a hundred miles. So he gets to Bakersfield or Beersheba and he's like, I just want to die. He was fully depleted, and the anxiety turned into depression. I, I want to unpack this over the next couple of weeks, because I see three main factors in Elijah's life that I see so often in my own life that are contributors 
to the anxiety that wants to ruin our lives. And you might want to write these down. I'll put them on the screen for you. But here's the first one, exhaustion. The second one is isolation. And the third one is distortion. So we're going we're gonna to be looking at this story for three weeks and, and, and looking at these different factors. And, and today we want to highlight the exhaustion factor. Because I, I know as I speak this message this morning that there are some of you that you relate to that. Anybody wake up tired today? <laughs> you just got to better like, I just want to go back to bed. Of course you guys are. You're the 11 o'clock service. <laughs> you did go back to bed. <sighs> what makes us feel so exhausted? And, you know, everybody's story is going to be a little bit different, but I believe a major part is being overcommitted, overstimulated, which leads to us being overwhelmed. Overcommitted, we're doing so many things, overstimulated, our brains are never at rest to leave us in this state of constantly feeling overwhelmed. The jury's still out about what is causing us as a culture to feel so tired and to feel so drained. But one thing is really standing out in a lot of new studies. It's this thing right here. I don't know if you remember some of the stats that I was reading, but a lot of these increases in anxiety and depression corresponded with the invention of the iPhone. 2007, I was in line at the Apple store. I was, one, I was the guy. I didn't sleep overnight, but I was in line. I wanted that. I was one of the only guys that had a Palm Pilot. Remember Palm Pilots? I was that guy, but I was like so excited about the iPhone. But we are so connected to these things, and they're so useful. I mean, they're your main source of information, phone calls, communication, social media. I mean, it's, it's constant. But check this one study out I was reading this week. Young adults who spend more than 20 hours of leisure time per week on digital devices were 53% more likely to have anxiety than young adults who spent fewer than five hours a week on digital devices. There's a connection. I want us to do an experiment. Are you open, you open to doing this in church? Can, can you play along with me? All right, get your phones out, all right? Now, I can only speak to iPhone owners. If, if you have an Android or a Galaxy, you're on your own, all right? But I'm still praying for you to have a heavenly revelation. Sean Sinclair, all right? But it's interesting. I, I have a slide. I, in one of the recent updates on the iPhones, they included a new app called Screen Time. So you may not even know this is on your phone, but your phone is tracking how often you're using it. So I want to walk you through this because some of you don't even realize how often you're on your phones. So go to uh, your, your home screen uh, and then click on settings. It, it's a little icon that have, have these gears. It's gray in color. And, and then you're going to open up to that screen on the left. And if you go down right under do not disturb, there is a, a setting that says screen time. So click on that, and then you're going to read. It's going to say daily average, 
and then it says see all activity. So click on see all activity, and then you can look at it per week or per day. I'm going to look at just mine uh, per week here, and um, I'm going to read last week because it reset today. So there's a, there's a little button that, that you can actually go to uh, last week and, and check on your, your uh, patterns for last week. Now, it will tell you, the first line there will say last week's average. So this is how long you're using, you're actually on your phone for a variety of various uses. It'll tell you how long. Now, I am embarrassed to admit to you how long I've been on my phone, to be honest with you. But I'm going to tell you just to use myself as an example. I was on my phone on average each day last week, five hours and 32 minutes. Now you're knowing why my fingers are hurting, all right? <laughs> so scroll down a little bit more. It'll tell you all the time that you spent on all your apps, okay? What's embarrassing to me on this side, the Bible app, I was on Facebook more than I was on my Bible app. <laughs> I'm the pastor. My phone is tattling on me. So keep scrolling down. It says, it says pickups. Now this is how many times you reached over and you picked up your phone. Now, my average pickups per day last week was 65 times a day. Oh my God. <laughs> God, pray for me, Marianne. This is confessions of a pastor right now. Now, here's notifications. If you could keep scrolling down, notifications... This is how many times your phone notifies you. You get a text message. You get somebody that, you know, makes a comment on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And so how many times your phone's like going, bleh, bleh, and letting you know. On average, I received 105 notifications per day. That's me. Stop judging me. Yeah, pray for me. Now as, now, as I'm, like, looking at this, and we had fun as a family. Last night, we were comparing, and, and I, di I did beat all my kids uh, on that. Uh, as much as I say they're always on their phone, they're like, look who's talking, Dad. But it's crazy that we have access to so much on one device. We, we find out news events, like, as they happen around the world. I, I knew more about the fires through Twitter than the television did because of some of the, the Twitter accounts that were keeping me updated on, on where the fires were and, and what was happening. But on, on top of that, you, you've got your, all your social medias on here. And I was reading one that says 38% of social media users like or promote political or social material, and no matter where you fall on the spectrum, you're likely to see something that either angers or saddens you. When you're already upset, this isn't what you need. <laughs> see, I remember, if you're over 40, you're with me on this, I remember the good old days where if you had to get a hold of somebody, you had to call their house. <laughs> and very often, guess what? They weren't home. And you had to leave a message on their answer machine. But I can, I can go even back further than that. I can remember a time where there were no answer machines. 
There was no call waiting. I mean, you called somebody, they were on the phone. You had a busy signal. We drove our parents crazy as teenagers because our phone was always busy. But what'd you do? You just had to wait. You had to try them back later. But nowadays, people have the expectation that they can get a hold of you at any time, at any moment. And a lot of us are living under the snaps of every person's fingers. A text message comes in, an email notification happens, we gotta respond, we gotta, we gotta text back, we gotta call, we gotta answer. It's crazy how much this phone is dictating our lives, and it's no wonder why all of this stuff is exponentially growing at the same time that the phones came into existence. And it's no wonder why we're exhausted. I mean, I wake up and I look over and I already have notifications and God bless you guys that wake up at five in the morning and start texting and, and that's why I'm like, I miss Las Vegas where people slept in there. This town, you guys wake up early. <laughs> but then it was interesting, in the, in the 2000s, we had the invention of energy drinks. And I remember, like, in Mountain Dew was like, hey, you drink a Mountain Dew, it's like, yeah, you're good, you know. Or, or how many remember Jolt Cola? <laughs> Jolt? But now, no, that's nothing. We got the Red Bulls. We got the, you know, I didn't even know what this guy was. He just looked cool. Rain! You know, they just, they just look macho. They just look like, ah, rock star, monster, bang. <laughs> and, and these these came on scene when everybody was feeling exhausted and everyone thought, well, we're feeling drained, so we just need to energize ourselves more to kind of offset how tired we feel. And reality is, they are now connecting the dots to anxiety disorders to energy drinks. There was one young man in Bakersfield I was ministering to. He's 24 years old. And he was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And I said, when did you kind of start feeling and experiencing anxiety? He says, I, I, I don't know, but it, it was sometime in high school. And, and I just happened to kind of start doing the, the math on the energy drinks. I go, by chance, do you drink energy drinks? He says, yeah. I go, that's interesting. So they're doing studies right now connecting energy drinks to anxiety. He said, As a matter of fact, he says, I started drinking energy drinks in junior high. He says, I was drinking five Red Bulls a day as a middle schooler. <laughs> this is our culture. We're feeling tired, so we're just going to caffeinate ourselves and we'll over kind of stimulate ourselves, and that's actually making things even worse. So instead of kind of ramping ourselves up for the exhaustion, I believe God's remedy is to actually slow ourselves down. And I watched the Today Show a couple weeks ago, and I was like, wow, isn't it crazy that mainstream media is paying attention to this epidemic and realizing that something needs to change drastically in our culture because we're on a trajectory that is very, very scary right now with this anxiety and depression. And check out what they did on this feature and how they talked about it. Go ahead and check it out. 
We live in a fast-paced world and the speed accelerating. As consumers, we expect a business model that delivers instantly, meaning we can have almost anything in the world faster than ever. And social media has sped up how quickly your images and videos reach the masses. We are even redefining human speed itself. Just recently, a Kenyan runner completed the fastest marathon ever. The world record holder, 201.40. But will all this speed lead to a collision? Each year, half the car crashes in the U.S. are caused by aggressive drivers, mostly as a result of speeding. And studies show multitasking leads to as much as a 40% drop in productivity. In fact, only 2.5% of the population actually processes tasks simultaneously, and those who attempt make up to 50% more errors. The result, burnout, which has recently become an officially diagnosable condition. Characterized by exhaustion, negative feelings, and reduced effectiveness, the term, which once referred only to the workplace, is now spilling over into family life. Parental burnout can have serious consequences on parents and kids, which is why there's now an entire movement devoted to slowing things down. Carl Honoré is the author of In Praise of Slowness and is leading the slow movement at a perfect pace. Slow, it's a mindset really. It's about quality over quantity. It's about being present in the moment. Ultimately, it's about doing everything not as fast as possible, but as well as possible. This includes slowing down in all aspects of life, food, travel, fashion, and education. For Carl, this slower life represents a more balanced one. I was racing through my life instead of actually living it. These days, when I need to be fast, I can be as fast as anyone needs to be. But I also have other gears, and that allows me to live, think, eat, just do everything better and enjoy my life more. In a society where busy has become a status symbol, perhaps we all need a reminder to take the slow and steady path. In the moment, we feel like we have to say yes to everything. Two, three weeks later, when we look back at the things we felt we could not possibly say no to, we realize that we've forgotten them. They weren't really that important. And sometimes taking that bigger view, that longer perspective, allows us to prioritize. I tell you, rushing around being busy there's a lot of negative things that happen, like injuring yourself. <laughs> let, let me tell you, this happened at the Big Daddy Weave concert uh, of a pastor trying to play a roadie, um, which, by the way, I've discovered that you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> but these guys, these young guys were loading the truck so fast that they actually took a truss, and I, and I was like one of the only taller guys there, and I put a truss up, and the, one of the guys on the crew slammed another truss right into my thumb while my thumb was still there and crushed all the upper bone of my thumb. And so I was in the studio getting ready for the young adults group on Tuesday, and I was opening a box, overcompensating with only having one hand with a pair of scissors in this hand, and I went to open a box, and my index finger got trapped in the scissors, and I completely filleted off my whole fingertip. So yes, I'm accident prone. <laughs> so I just sitting there and I'm bleeding. I can't stop bleeding. Terror rushes me. I was at the ER twice within 24 hours. They're, the second time they're like, you again? I go, yes. We have to stop meeting like this. But it, it, it's, it's hurting us. And, and this remedy of slowing down isn't a new idea. Jesus preached this constantly when he was here. 
Matter of fact, there's the, the best shining example of this moment in Luke chapter 10, where these two women were there, they were sisters, and they were taking care of Jesus. Jesus was in the house. He was doing ministry there. You can find this in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. It's such a good illustration of what we're talking about here. It's a teaching moment for Martha. She's busy. She's anxious. Everything's got to be perfect running around, getting everything ready, and her sister is just kicking it at the feet of Jesus, listening, absorbing the presence of the Son of God. And instead of Jesus rebuking Mary, he turns around and he corrects Martha. He's saying, your sister has discovered something that you need to take note of. Because she is digesting something that is good for her soul that is going to help her whole well-being. All of this other stuff you're doing is not necessarily bad, but what she's doing is exceptionally good. So I don't want to beat you up today and say, you got to stop doing this, stop doing that. I want to tell you, you need to start doing something, and you need to do what I need to do, and we need to spend more time at the feet of Jesus. And we need to kind of close things up this morning. I'm going to have the worship team come up here. But I want us to just walk through these three things that happen when you sit at the feet of Jesus. When Mary was there and why Jesus said, this is the one thing and this is, this is how she chose the thing that is of good portion. Number one, you're going to find rest. When you sit with Jesus, when you're with him, when you're present with him, He's breathing into your soul more than anything else can do on this planet. Matter of fact, I will tell you, nothing else can breathe rest into your soul but God. They can breathe rest into your mind. I mean, I'm all about going to a movie and just like forgetting the busyness of life, and and that's fine to have your mind at rest or even your body at rest, but only Jesus can give your soul rest. Matthew 11, 28, 29. It says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When you're at the feet of Jesus, you are resting your soul. And let me tell you, when your soul is at rest, it has a major impact on the rest of who you are. Because then your mind and your body follow suit with your soul. Here's the second thing, you're going to remember. When you're at the feet of Jesus, you're gonna remember that even though you have great trouble, God is greater than your trouble. Even though you have great difficulties, 
God is greater than the difficulty. And I've noticed something about my own life. Distance creates distortion. And that when I'm not spending time at the feet of Jesus, my problems, my troubles, my difficulties seem to be so overwhelmingly bigger and larger than my relationship with God. But it's so amazing that when I move myself into the presence of God, he kind of recalibrates my perspective. He, he kind of readjusts how things are being perceived by me. Because I remember that even though my trouble is great, my God is greater than my trouble. This is what communion's about. He says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me, the miracle worker, the healer, the overcomer. That your trouble is there, your trouble is real, but just know that I've overcome the world. Remember me. And the third thing is you're going to refuel. He's going to refuel you. It's not just about soaking in the presence of God. The Bible calls Jesus our wonderful counselor. I can't tell you how many times I've sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his words speak to my soul where he encouraged me. He filled me with hope. He gave me promise. He gave me purpose. This Saturday morning, yesterday, I'm getting ready for our, our Bible study with the men, and I just sat there, and I was reading Matthew 19. I'm just absorbing the word, and in that moment, God started speaking to me some great, great promises. I left going, wow, God, I'm so grateful to have this relationship with you. That even though I feel overwhelmed sometimes, I can just sit in your presence and you completely flip the script and I leave my time with you full of hope, full of promise, and full of purpose. Some of you, if I told you, hey, I can get you an appointment with Dr. Phil where it's just you and Dr. Phil all afternoon and you can just sit and listen and unpack your life and he's going to counsel you. Man, I, I would have so many of you going, yeah, hey, can you set that up? If, if I had this uh, opportunity to get Tony Robbins and, and you to have this like private one-on-one -on -one and say, man, he's my buddy. You come in here and you can meet with him just, you know, $100. Man, you guys would be coming up and going, hey, man, here's my 100 bucks, man. Set that up for me, would you? I'm telling you, you have the opportunity to sit with the God that created the universe every single day of your life for free. And whereas Dr. Phil and Tony Robbins may be able to help you, God has the ability to change you. And that, my friends, is why God brought us to the Conejo Valley to start Atmosphere Church. And he told me lives are gonna be changed, people are gonna be healed, and families are gonna be restored. And I believe one of the ways that that's gonna happen is that when anxiety starts pushing us around, we're gonna push back, not by our power, not by our might, but by the power and the might of God who is greater than the anxiety that is coming against our life. Thank you for tuning in today to another great message from Atmosphere Church. If this message has spoken to your heart, would you take a moment and share it with your friends? 
You can connect with us on Spotify, iTunes podcast, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Simply do a search for Atmosphere Church through these various platforms and then click the follow or subscribe buttons. It's another great way for us to be able to stay connected with you. If you live in the Southern California area, we would love to invite you to be part of our family. For more information about our church, go to our official webpage at www.atmosphere.church. Finally, if this service and our other resources bless you, would you consider giving back to Atmosphere Church to support not just these things, but to also support the creation of even more resources for you and really for others who are also desiring to grow in their faith? To make a donation, simply go to our website and click on the tab that says Give. Your gift of any amount is greatly appreciated. Until next time, we pray you will keep the faith, spread the hope, and live the love. Bye.